Hello, I'm Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to or watching Radio Maine. Today, it is my very um, my my very special pleasure to have in the studio with me uh, a woman who spent time with one of I would say the icons of American photography, arguably, um, and this is Betsy Evans Hunt. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks. Happy to be here. So. I don't want to minimize what you also did over the course of your own career, but you also studied photography. You also owned a gallery. I mean, you, you did a lot of things in this field before you even met Todd. Yes, I did. I I, um, I did. I wrote my thesis on um, Alfred Sieglitz and Georgia O'Keeffe. Um, and so it was so funny to meet Todd years later, who was friends with them. But I also had a stint, a sort of a wild stint in New York, where I worked for um, Robert Maplethorpe. Um, so I managed his studio in the 1980s and met a lot of the um, the players during that time in terms of the people involved with the photography business. So, so I'm wondering. Uh, so for those people who might be on the maybe weren't alive during the 80s, let's just say that. Tell me about the Robert Maplethorpe experience because he was quite controversial. At he, the time. Was, he was. He um, was. He was just transitioning into being sort of accepted in society. He had done a series of work which was um, underground, sort of um, S&M gay portraits and that sort of thing. And then he was transitioning into doing um, portraits. Um, he did a body of work on a uh, um, woman bodybuilder named Lisa Lyon. Um, and he also did black male nudes, which were um, more sculptural um, in any event. But he did a lot of stuff for Interview Magazine. And so I was sort of hired to be his his gal Friday. And I, um, you know, would greet people and serve them coffee. It was so embarrassing because it was um, instant coffee that we served them back then. Anyway, um, so that was fun. It was for about two years. And, um, and then it was in the early 1980s. And I was still sort of in my early mid twenties and not really sure what I was up to. So I only did it for about two years, but it was, it was so much fun. And he was, he was a character for sure, but he was just sort of taking off into the next realm of um, acceptability and then fame really. So it was great. And it's interesting to think about if he had been born say 20 years later, you know, and if, if this had happened, that experience you're describing, if that had happened maybe 30 years later, because I feel like lately there's been a lot more acceptance of this type of work that you're describing oh, yeah. and a lot more acceptance of just a broad variety of lives. No, it's really true. And I mean, also, sadly, he, you know, he died of AIDS. And so you think about, you know, the, the wonderful treatments that are available now. Um, so all of that. Yeah. But he was, yeah, he was on the forefront of things for sure. And he always, he really did always want to be famous. Um, that was, he was not shy about saying that. So he sort of wanted to fashion himself after Andy Warhol. Um, it's interesting. So I, you know, it was a great experience for me, but it was sort of like, then I moved to the Virgin Islands and lived with my, my boyfriend on a boat for a couple of years. <laughs> And then I came back and I um, worked at the Addison Gallery um, in Andover, which is a wonderful small museum of American art. And I cataloged their collection. And then I did a program at Sotheby's. And then I ended up getting up here um, to work in the antiques business. And that was fraught with all sorts of things. And so I ended up opening my gallery here in 1989. Tell me about your own photography. I'm not a photographer. 
Oh, okay. No. So but how did you get interested in this field then? I was an art history major. And so then I just was really interested in the history of photography. Um, and when I did my thesis on Alfred Sieglitz, who was sort of the premier, you know, 20th century American photographer, um, I got my first job in a gallery in San Francisco, um, which was a photography gallery. And that was in the late 1970s. Um, and so um, that was when it was just all taking off. Um, and so people like Graham Nash, you know, from Crosby, Sills and Nash were, were collecting. And so these all these fancy, fun people would come in and buy things. And um, so I got to know just... I mean, all sorts of people, it just surreptitiously. So that's what enabled me to, um, when I got back to Maine, all the people I'd known 10 years before had all of a sudden, you know, gotten their places and were having their own galleries. And so I was able to really get a lot of really good work um, because of those connections. Um, so I mostly got things on consignment, so I didn't have to a huge outlay. Um, didn't make great margins, um, but I was able to get great stuff like Elliot Porter and Ansel Adams and that kind of stuff. So it was fun. I, I happen to know from kind of just being a fly on the wall over at the Portland Art Gallery that selling photography is very different than selling fine art, let's just say. It's just, it's a different market. It's a different kind of structure. Or it's, I mean, you're selling prints. You're not selling original work. I mean, it's original, but I mean, it's all going to be a copy of something. Right. So tell me about that experience. Well, it's interesting because if, if people have gone through, I mean, now photographers are really trying to um, integrate themselves into either doing more unique works or very limited editions. Um, and many photographers enjoy showing at galleries that have have painting and sculpture and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, it's, it's sort of an artificial thing, to be honest. I mean... Um, people like Ansel Adams um, and and Todd. Um, in the old days, um, Ansel Adams' most famous picture is Moonrise Over Hernandez. Um, and there are probably at least a thousand of those that exist. And so there's really no rhyme or reason to the market because those can sell from fifty dollars to $150,000 or $200,000 per print. Um, it's be So it's sort of a supply and demand in a way because it's such a popular image. But... Um, but then when I got involved with Todd, we did it, we sort of doing, he had a lot of beautiful vintage work, which is either unique, i.e. So he was working large format. So eight by 10 negative, five by seven negative. So contact print would be that size. Um, and those would be, they might be one or two or three images that he did over the years. But then when I started working with him and we printed some larger work, um, we started limiting the additions. Um, so it's it's um, it's interesting because it's, it's, it's just a way of, you know, assuring the collector that there's, there are not a thousand of them around, although people collect, it's, it's, that's what I say, it's it's a contradiction. But in any event, um, it's a way to sort of limit the, um, and to make sure that the value of the piece, you know, so we did uh, editions of 10 and 15, that sort of thing. But we never printed them all. And so um, I have the ability to do them posthumously up into whatever number, you know, exists, but it's, it's a, it's a complicated market. Um, but you know, if the photographer printed it themselves and signed it themselves, and then there's also a thing between vintage and modern and, uh, in photography, people, um, tend to, collectors tend to go for, you know, really serious collectors go for vintage work, um, which is, 
considered to be maybe closer to the artist's conception at, you know, taken a picture taken and printed at the same time it was taken, that kind of thing. So, well, I enjoy hearing about this. I, yeah. I, I think, um, you know, having talked to Nina Fuller and, and yeah. subsequently then uh, buying one of her pieces and watching that whole process. And it's, you know, the large format, as you say, I mean, it's very different than, oh, I'm just going to send this off to Shutter, Shutterfly and, you know, something's going to come back and I'm going to stick it on my desk at work. Yeah. And understanding someone, I mean, Nina is fabulous. I've known her for a long time. but And someone like Todd, who's a completely different generation, he was born in 1905 um, and was taking pictures. He didn't really, he came to photography later in his career, actually. He was in his mid-late 30s before he started. But he was working, as I mentioned, with um, an 8x10 camera or a 5x7 camera. So any given day, he was walking around town with, first of all, this very cumbersome thing and a tripod. And also probably only as maybe 10 pieces of film. Um, maybe only five, depending on how much money he had. So he had to really pick and choose time of day, location. He couldn't just go take a million pictures and then choose one. Do you know what I mean? And so it's a, it's a whole different um, psyche, which is pretty cool. I think I remember in reading in I See a City um, that one of the challenges that he had there was you either kind of decided that a car was going to be in the shot or a car wasn't going to be in the shot. Right. And that kind of makes sense now that you're telling me if he's bringing a tripod around and setting it up. Yeah. Um, that you kind of, that's a big decision. Yeah. And there's a lot of variables that you can't really control for, I would think, in no, that sort of photography. Yeah. Well, and that's, and you're speaking of the, he's speaking about this, um, his panel, which is uh, 8th Avenue, I mean, 6th Avenue between 43rd and 44th. Um, taken in 1948. And he did it on a Sunday morning because he thought there'd be less traffic, which he was right about. And he marked off with chalk on the opposite side of the street, like the eight different pictures he wanted to take. And then he took, stood and took one picture and then he stood and took another picture. But he had to wait, you know. Um, and he, um, yeah, he got it. I mean, there are some cars that are parked, but he doesn't have any moving cars in it. So it's, yeah, luck, timing, smarts. Which which is still a thing even in today's photography, because I know having worked with, with people who are now even doing digital work is they're always paying attention to what's going on with the light, what's going on with the weather, you know. Oh, and, yeah. And so it's, it's, I think, a little, again, different from other types of visual art where there is at least perhaps you're working from a photograph or perhaps you're doing plain air, but there's a little bit more stasis that you're dealing with, perhaps. Yeah, it's just interesting. I think... Yeah, absolutely. And Todd just fell in love with it. He um, was working for Chrysler in the late 30s, and he was a member of the Chrysler Camera Club. Um, and they got, they somehow wrangled um, Ansel Adams to come and give them a workshop, and it was a 10-day workshop. And up until that point, he'd been a, you know, it was just an avocation at photography, but then after that, it was just something he had to do. He was just smitten, bitten, you know, by the bug, and he writes in his journal, I have a journal of his, it's 1,300 pages long, from 1946 to 1976. But it's just like he, any given month, he might have only, you know, literally $5. And he just, just wanted, he had to continue. It's just, so I think it's a passion, as all art is. But it was certainly a passion for Todd. So In one of the books, um, there's a story about his lost work. Yeah. And about how you actually 
went and found his work yeah. that had been gone for a very long time and you were yeah. able to recover it. Yeah. So I'd like you to tell us about that. Ugh, such an incredible story. So when I met Todd in um, 1989, um, I had certainly heard of him, and I said, why don't you have a gallery representation? And he said, well, I had a very difficult situation with a gallery in the, in the 1970s who um, this fellow promised to buy my basically my whole collection for a certain amount of money, and then he only paid me about a third of it and then um, sort of absconded with most of it. And so he, Todd just had a terrible taste in his mouth about dealing with photography. And he also grew up, very simply, he was a Quaker. Um, he wasn't really practicing Quaker as an adult, but that was his background. And so he, you know, they lived very simply um, and and well, but simply. So um, time went on, and I kept on saying, "Todd, don't you want to go after these guys?" You know, and he said, "Nope, nope, nope." It just wasn't in his nature. So he died, and then I sort of inherited that reluctance. Um, I didn't ever want to, but then I had to finally the um, contract to do the show at the Museum of the City of New York in 2017. And I had seen stuff come up online um, and very, you know, eBay and that sort of thing that were um, not necessarily the best prints and selling for way under market um, value. And I kind of knew where to look. I just didn't, didn't, I was just, anyway, but I thought I've got to figure out where this stuff is because all of a sudden Todd's name is going to be raised up a little bit more and I don't want this stuff sort of hanging around out there. So I found this, person. He was um, lived in Berkeley. He had bought this stuff from the original fellow. And he and two other guys, so this crazy consortium of these three guys in Berkeley, bought most of the work. So the work was originally sold in 76, and they bought it in 81. And um, as weirdly enough, I had actually met this fellow when I worked for the gallery in San Francisco in the late 1970s. So off we go, and I go to his um, bungalow in Berkeley, and it's he's a bit of a hoarder, um, like quite a hoarder. And so he made me take off my shoes, but then I walk through these stacks of, like, stuff, and he walks me up to a room, a bedroom, where he had splayed out mostly O'Keefe photographs, and there were quite a number of them, and they were fantastic. I was like, wow, this is amazing, you know, blah, blah, blah. I said, is this it? He said, oh, no, there's more. So off we go to Oakland, California, and um, on the hills of Oakland, and um, uh, met this other fellow. So these guys are now in their mid seventies. Um, this is in 2016, and they say, "Well, come downstairs." So there's, in this basement, there were five steamer trunks with padlocks on them, <laughs> and thankfully a dry basement. Anyway, we opened them up, and it was just like mind blowing because it was um, there are probably seven thousand thousand items in there negatives, prints, journals, ephemera, basically the sum total of Todd's life. And so I understand why he um, never really wanted to talk about it. And so it took me two or three trips to actually go and sort of quantify the whole thing. And then I worked out, I wanted to one, I talked to some lawyers about maybe suing these guys. And they just said, you know, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. And, you know, it wouldn't, and Todd wouldn't have wanted me to do that anyway. So we worked out a deal where I was able to get the work back and because they they you know they had known Todd and they wanted to do the right thing they were just a little bit hapless I said what are you going to do with all this you know and so I had inherited so Todd at a certain point had gotten some of the stuff back and so I'd inherited what he had which was also a fantastic group of things and so this was so anyway it just was a crazy story we got the five trunks 
across the country and back. And now, we've, you know, we've been obviously cataloging it all since. And and so we made some incredible discoveries um, So from it, which is one of us, the Africa work. So Yes. So I, I was really interested to read this because this was some of the Africa work, well, or maybe all of it, wasn't it commissioned by? Yes, by the UN. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So he was meant to go to Africa. He did go to Africa to photograph sort of emerging nations and technologies and that sort of thing. And so um, I had known about the trip. We had, we'd spoken about it, but I had no idea. I'd only ever seen maybe two or three black and white prints that he had. And so we found the, in the trunks were all these negatives and their color. And thank God they were in good shape. And so first of all, color, which I mean, I never saw any color work by Todd before this time. And it's square format which is different for him. So it was this whole crazy discovery. And then I, I brought the stuff home and I showed it um, initially to Aimé Basir, who is a good friend who's um, a noted um, Africanist and African art history teacher, teaches at Bates. And so she, and I just thought it was extraordinary, but I wanted to get her take on it. And she said, oh my God, there's nothing like this in the lexicon because... Um, unfortunately, most many Africans during the time just didn't have the ability to shoot color. Um, and um, all we ever knew, saw really from that time is sort of the National Geographic ethnographic pictures of people in villages and that sort of thing. And this body of work really shows people in an emerging um, Africa that's, you know, got everything going on. And... Um, and so it's like it's not the National Geographic and it's not the safari pictures. It's like Africa happening in the late 50s. And interestingly, um, there was um, – it was just when colonial rule was sort of turning over. So, for instance, there's one incredible picture from Togo um, when they uh, declared their independence from France. So it's just – it's a time in Africa that's really exciting. Um, so it's – Anyway, it was just fabulous. So we were able to put together this group of people and um, Aime and then a woman named Erin Hyde Nolan, who had worked for me, um, who knew everything about Todd. Um, and they're actually good friends. And they together, they collaborated on putting together the Africa book. So it was great. What is it like to be working kind of posthumously on behalf of this great photographer? Well, it's very gratifying. Um Todd and I were really good friends. Um, I was so lucky to have met them. They as wandered in my gallery in 1989, and they were in their 80s at the time, and they were, um, you know, four foot nothing, holding hands, the cutest couple you ever saw. And it took about a year, but we would start going out to lunch, and um, they be, really became the elders in my life. Um, they, My parents passed away around that same time, and so... Um, even though they're old enough really to be my grandparents. Um, we just formed a real bond. Um, so after a year or two, um, I finally said, well, can I start representing you? And they, he said, sure. Um, and so we did, I think, a three-month or a six-month sort of trial. And basically at that point, I didn't have the gallery anymore, but I was um, selling through other galleries. So I had all these connections in like New York and L.A. and Santa Fe and Boston. And so the, those galleries would sell the work, and then I would – um, you know, give the money to Todd, basically take a little bit of a commission. But um, so it worked out and we really did well. Um, and you just became, you know, he became, they became a part of our family. And um, so when they were in their 90s, um, 
Chris was their doctor for a while, my husband. His first doctor was Dr. Thompson. Do you remember Dr. Phil Thompson? Oh, he was a GP. Anyway, so so anyway, so and then they would come for every holiday, blah, 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 blah. So anyway, when they were in their 90s, they said, um, we'd like for you to carry on. Um, and I said, okay. So, you know, quite frankly, um, so he died in 2000, and he was almost 95, and she died in 2008. She was 102. And since then, I mean, I've, I have to say I've had major ups and downs with it um, because it was really hard for a while to really get traction. So it was really wasn't until I got the, the trunks back and then also did the New York book that all of a sudden things started falling in place. So I'd had my moments of like, ah, what am I going to do? Da, da, da. But now I'm like on a, on a steamroller and I'm – so we've got all these projects planned and um, I just – I know that Todd and Lucille are smiling, and um, and I, quite frankly, can't think of anything else that I'd rather be doing, A, or that I could be doing. <laughs> so it's just one of those fateful things, you know, so really lucky. When I think about Todd as, a, as an individual, I mean, first of all, didn't he start out in finance? It's a crazy story. So he was born in Detroit in 1905. He... Um, as I said, in this Quaker family, he, um, when he was about 14, he asked some girl out to a tea dance without checking with somebody. And so his parents set him up to Canada to live with his grandfather, which as it turned out was his grandfather was more lenient than his parents. So anyway, he lived um, outside of Toronto for his high school and college years. During that time, he got some mountaineering experience. He did some park service work which figures into the story later. So in any event, he comes back um, and he gets a job as a banker, yeah, in the 20s um, in Detroit. And he was like, it's so untoddlike because he was such a simple guy. But apparently he was making like $100,000 back then, which gosh knows what that would be now. And he had two cars and tons of girlfriends and blah, 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 blah. And then the crash came um, in 1929 and he lost everything. And he got a job with Chrysler just to go deliver a car out West. And he um, got to North of San Francisco and he bought a burrow and he went up and panned for gold for two years for the beginning of the depression, made some money anyway, but that's where this mountaineering thing came in. And he also had had um, ancestors who had um, come in the wagons across um, from um, the East coast to the Midwest so he was always interested in all that kind of stuff. He had his, he actually had his great grandfather's compass. Um, so he did that, and then he um, was in um, San Francisco doing odd jobs, and he got back to Detroit in the mid '30s and got a job with Chrysler, but which was sort of a middle management job. I'm not really clear as to what he was up to doing that, but that's when he got into photography. And then, but then, you know, anyway, it's an amazing story. But I mean, panning for gold. <laughs> I think, and I think when he came back, to, I think he rode the rails like as a hobo coming back to get back to Detroit. And he and Lucille didn't get together as a married couple until they were in their 40s, right? Yes, yes. So, and that's a crazy thing because um, they met in Paris. Um, so Todd was in New York right after the war for about two years had great success there, got to know Alfred Stieglitz and O'Keefe and everybody then. Um, and um, But then he got a job um, in 1948 with the Marshall Plan, 
um, and also Standard Oil to go to Europe and photograph. Um, Standard Oil was more sort of a propaganda thing, like, well, how is oil good for your life kind of thing? And But the Marshall Plan, he traveled, he was stationed in Paris, but he traveled to Belgium and Germany and Holland and, um, you know, taking pictures to see how everybody was rebuilding. Um, but so he, but he was stationed in Paris and fell absolutely in love with Paris. He was absolutely in love with New York. He was absolutely in love with Paris. Um, and after the second year he was there, this um, Lucille was with a group of people who somehow knew Todd, and they all got together, and they were in their early forties. They're they're actually exactly a year apart, um, and so they're I think forty three and forty four years old, and it was just like boom. I mean, they both like dated a ton of people, and Todd especially. And sadly. I, I now have his real journal, and I've seen I've seen all the entries. And I'm like, no, because he's sort of like a father. And I was like, I don't want to hear this. But anyway, um, but Lucille, so they always tell the story they fell in love, blah, 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 blah. Well, I found out from the journal, Lucille would kill me for saying this, but um, that she actually was married, um, and she was traveling with her husband when she met Todd. And she came home and got divorced, and you know they were married like three months later, so. I don't really know. But anyway, they had a wonderful marriage. They both um, obviously didn't have children because they were married late in life. But I think uh, Lucille had an interesting situation in the 20s. Her mom left the family when she was young, sort of ran off with um, somebody. And I think she, and then Todd also, his father did sort of the same thing, left when he was about, after, you know, he was about 15. So I think they both just, whatever reason, decided they didn't want to have children. And I mean, at that point, they, in those days probably couldn't have, but they just, they were living independent lives and loved what they were doing and had a fascinating life together. So, and a great marriage. So it was, it was really good. They were great. So they must've been together for half a century. Yeah, they were. So, and they taught me a lot, you know, it's interesting. You know, so as I always say, don't go to bed angry, you know, all that good stuff. So anyway, you know, they're just, they were like parents to me. So it was great. You and I, of course, share another connection, and and that is that your husband is a family doctor. Yep. Now retired, but yep. someone who actually taught me mm-hmm. at the medical center. And um, I know that when you are married, and my husband will attest to this, when you are married to a doctor or someone in the profession, you're kind of married to the profession. You're you're kind of you become this becomes kind of your life. Yeah. And particularly in family medicine. Yeah. Did that ever? I mean, were there ever kind of opportunities or challenges that occurred as you were trying to live this very different kind of life, doing the work in photography and curation and having um, a gallery? No, it was, it was. I mean, I'm lucky enough to um, basically work for myself and work my own hours. So I definitely had flexibility. Um, so it, it really, it worked out. But I mean, when we first got together though, it was sort of like, oh my God, you know, he'd be on call and somebody would call and the baby has 102 fever and and I'd be like awake, like waiting for the next call. How's that baby? You know, or, or like, you know, somebody's in labor and you know, they're four centimeters and I'd be like making the coffee, you know, and he'd be like, no, just call me when she's like seven. I was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) It's like, you got to go now. So it was that sort of stuff and me just not really being conversant and, you know, but, um, it was, you know, always like on the other end of the phone, just, I was listening that, you know, intently and, um, always just, I very, um, I don't know. Family doctors are are heroes, and they're sort of like, um, sort of like the village priest in a way. I mean, I think Todd. I mean, um, excuse me, Chris. Um, and 
he got out really when HMOs started coming in and saying, you have five minutes for this and two minutes for that. And he just was like, he was the guy who wanted to do the hour long physical. And um, so sadly that sort of went by the wayside and he was able to, um, he had, you know, other means. And so he was able to retire, but everybody still stops me in the supermarket and says, why? We missed your husband. He was the greatest. And, um, but happily, um, we have two daughters and, um, my oldest daughter, Lila is, um, has a little baby girl and she's, uh, she says a lot of wonderful work with like the museum and that kind of stuff. And then we have a daughter, Sage, who, just graduated from um, medical school and she's going to be a family doctor. So she's doing, she's starting her residency now. So um, yeah, it's exciting. Well, I'm, I'm so glad that you're, you're bringing up this relationship with um, and Todd and your husband, Chris. Um, And I think it's interesting to me that you, you also needed to build that really trusting relationship with Todd. So I, this idea that relationships are really important if you're going to do things in which um, trust and vulnerability and are, uh, those sorts of things are involved is so, so necessary to understand. No, it's true. And it's just sort of, um, I don't know, it just, when things, it just came easily to me with, with Todd, we just, we're pretty much in sync from the moment we met. Um, and so there was, there's sort of an, almost an innate understanding between us. Um, and so we both, you know, having had the experience that I had with the, the gallery in San Francisco and then with Maplethorpe and seeing like all the glitzy stuff about the art world. And um, Todd and I both were like, ugh, we hate that, you know? So we just, we just, you know, he said, you know, if you like my work, great, buy it. If you don't, fine, you know, it just was, so we just, understood each other right away. And so it was really, the trust was um, just forthcoming. I mean, it just happened very naturally. So very lucky. Betsy, how can people learn more about Todd Webb? Well, um, <laughs> our website is toddwebbphotographs.com. Um, and uh, there's a lot of information on there, actually. Um, and then you could email us and uh, get on, you know, our mailing list and that sort of thing. Um, info at toddwebphotographs.com. Um, and we actually, um, the Portland Museum of Art is hosting the Africa show um, in March. Um, it's opening in the middle of March um, of this of 2023. Um, so yeah, if you're in town, we'll, we'll be doing some events around that. So well, I encourage people who are interested in photography or history or culture or really anything to maybe get one of these books that I've had the chance to read, maybe go to the Portland Museum of Art in March or look up Betsy Evans Hunt, um, because Todd Webb is really um, a, a brilliant photographer and hearing his story, I think, just cements in my mind how important it is that we pay attention to somebody even after, uh, as he's watching us from wherever he is, up in the sky somewhere. (laughs) Um, I've been speaking with Betsy Evans-Hunt, and um, I really appreciate the time that you've taken with me today. Thanks so much. been a pleasure.